The Tea Stop In podcast is inspired by a long tradition of relaxed conversations about the film industry and the craft of cinematography. As a working cinematographer, producer and colourist, Ben Allen, ACSCSI, gets to have conversations with some of the most exciting people in the industry today. And we're inviting you to listen in. The T-Stop Inn. I'm Ben Allen and welcome to the T-Stop Inn, brought to you with the support of our friends at Ari Australia and MZ Online Training. Siggy Furstall is one of the most experienced and respected colourists in the world. And he's recently been doing some work that's genuinely revolutionary and really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with colour grading. Ziggy joins me on the phone from his colour grading suite at Company 3 in Los Angeles. Ziggy, welcome to the T-Stop Inn. Uh, thanks for having me. Now, you, um, in my memory, you were you know, doing telecine in Melbourne, doing great work. And then kind of from my perspective, in the blink of an eye, there you are at one of the top post houses in the world doing amazing stuff in, in LA. How did that journey happen? Well, uh, it's, <laughs> it's uh, definitely not an overnight journey. Um, <laughs> they never are, I, are they? <laughs> I, I started back in 82 in Melbourne, uh, back at AAV, wow. and uh, got my opportunity. So I was in Melbourne for, for a number of years, um, sort of learning my craft at a, a couple of companies. And then... Um, uh, like many Australians, went to Southeast Asia to do some sort of short stints there, mm. uh, going back to Melbourne. And then I had an opportunity to go to London, so I was in London for a couple of years. Then my old boss, who I used to work in Melbourne with, uh, offered me a job in Sydney and uh, and left London to go back to Australia, to back to Sydney, and worked there for you know um, nearly a decade, I think. Um, and then the opportunity to come to Los Angeles wasn't, I mean, it wasn't really on my radar. It was, it just happened like, um, a lot of good things by accident. Um, I just happened to be in New York at the time and, uh, uh, popped in for a visit to company three to, to check it out and, uh, basically walked out with a, um, a job offer. (laughs) Wow. So yeah, we considered it. And then, um, you know, I, I thought, well, I couldn't. After having lived in London for a while, and I couldn't really sort of live in a big city again, and they said, "Well, we have an LA office," and so thinking, "Well, I, you know, I could go to LA for a couple of years." Yeah. Um, think I'll be here for two to three years, and um, I think it's uh, close to sixteen years now. <laughs> wow. Um, very much home. So that's kind of how I ended up here. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's been great. In that journey that you just described, it really kind of encompasses that whole transition from standard def to HD to digital capture, this this massive journey that the industry's been on. You've really been there at the forefront of that. What's that been like for you? Well, it definitely keeps you on your toes. Um, <laughs> when I started out, we were there wasn't anything called time code. That was kind of wow. <laughs> uh, we're transferring to two-inch tape yep. um, and one-inch tape. And then, you know, you then also uh, at a time where you're doing keys and uh, just what we take for granted now was a big thing back there. Mm. And the best keys used to come at us straight out of the telephony. We'd 
feed like a four 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 signal out of the telephony into an Ultimat. We would do a live chroma key using the Ultimat, and then we would synchronize the background, which we had laid off prior to another tape machine, and then wow. combine those five in the telephony suite and record the output. So it was, you know, very, very different world back then where, where now all that can, you know, everyone can do that on their laptop now yeah, so, yeah. or their, their iPhone. And just evolving from that analog world to semi-digital world, component world, I guess, and mm. then to digital. And then um, the color correction, you know, even though it was all digital, it was color correction was a very processor intense process so a lot of the heavy lifting had to be done by hardware so we had these big heavy expensive rooms with sort of we'd have like you know these boards that you would slip into a computer that would just be a single layer of color correction whereas now it's just you know add a node and away you go yeah we don't think twice about adding a layer of color correction with just a of a button we're very wasteful as colorists we're actually often very wasteful at adding just layers um you know <laughs> yeah yeah it, it, it's not not unusual that you end up with you know 20 30 layers of color correction and you hit play and you expect uh, real-time playback it's it's yeah. um totally different world um, yeah. but it's you know one that i i really love i mean it things change so quickly now where you know you expected update maybe a two to three year cycle whereas mm. now it's a two to three month cycle yeah yeah you know what i mean yep in that two to three years you may get one or two new feature sets or tools whereas now in that two to three months you may be getting like a hundred new tools to, to play with so yeah. it's a great great time to be uh, an artist in the field because it really does open up the the creative possibilities quite a lot, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And it's working at a, a place like Company 3 where we do such a, a broad range of things. I mean, I don't think there's a, a company like that, like Company 3 in the world where they're so deeply entrenched into, you know, commercials and music videos mm-hmm. and, and feet, like high, high-end feature films. And, you know, we are known for color and that's that's what we do and that's you know we do it well so we we get a really broad range of projects to work on and you know there are some artists here that really just focus on one of those genres um myself i love like working between all sort of things like today i i i started my day doing a working on a tv show and then i switched over to do a commercial and then uh, once we finish tonight, I'll be working on a music video. That's just real variety. Yeah, so that's kind of fun. Uh, mm. I enjoy that. It's having sort of team in the because it does require a team to work on these different genres. Because you know uh, there are a lot of places that that, that focus on one, but it's, it's mm. nice to have the backing of place like Company Three that allows you to do it all. And do you find that you you're able to take things from from those genres and apply them in in other genres in different ways yeah it's absolutely it's, it's amazing every kind of like commercial clients sort of see things through their eyes and that's different to feature films and 
Mm. You know, what TV has been amazing in the last, like, three years, you know, what it was with the more uh, uh, broadcast type of work is now with all the streaming services have opened up a lot of the creativity. Mm. Like, everyone is being produced. What I find now is that TV is really driving the creativity, uh, whereas yeah. it, it used to be the other way around, like commercials and feature films used to mm, be driving mm, it. Definitely. And, and it's really just because of volume and everyone's looking for an edge. Um, and there's less and less restriction on from the studios in terms of what you can do look-wise. In that respect, it's great. Like There's so much uh, unbelievably looking, good-looking context out there. So. Mm. It really is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, and it's happened really quickly you know, just mm. over the last couple of years. Now, the, the reason that I got in touch and specifically wanted to have this uh, this conversation was I recently stumbled onto a, a beautiful film called Togo and it was literally uh, school holidays and it was a hot day and I was looking for something to, to put on for the kids and turned on Disney Plus and our dogs, snow, it's a hot day. Yeah, that'll distract them for a little while. And it's, yeah. it is such a wonderful film, uh, both as a story, the performances are fantastic, but visually it blew me away. And mm-hmm. some things that to me looked very, very genuinely new. How involved were you with yeah. the look of that film? He- heavily. Um, <laughs> Eric Paul, who is the director and also the uh, cinematographer, mm. approached me like a few months prior to shooting, stopped by and he had this, he, he had this book and we sort of, sat down in my bay and we, he's like going through these images of autochrome. And for those who are unsure what autochrome is, it's basically a, it was developed by the Lumiere brothers early last century. It was one of the first color photography processes. Essentially, it was the, the, they used potato starch to um, generate the different hues. Wow. And it wasn't perfect. Yeah. It, it, it gave it gave the images this sort of amazing texture and, and, and life and organicness to them. And um, he's like, you know, I, I want to create something like this, but I think, it's, wow. because I think it's a fairly simple process. I think if we just sort of added some texture and bits and pieces, I think, I think we'll be good. And it's like, so, okay, Eric, <laughs> it's like, uh, sure, it'll, it'll be really simple. But um, so we, we kind of, we did approach it and talked about it, but it was definitely was a look that is totally my wheelhouse and, and, and I loved the look and style. So we went and sh- shot it. I was, I was uh, heavily involved in setting the looks in the dailies process. So I would get stills every morning. Uh, they were, they were on these sort of remote locations in, yeah. in Canada, just outside Calgary. And um, they didn't have a dailies pipeline so it was kind of more happening just sort of on set i I believe with the dit and um i was being sent back stills i was applying the color corrections and then sending them back to to, to, to kind of use those as a as a reference the Ari Alexa Mini, which was used to photograph Togo, is one of the most flexible camera packages around. And because, like all Alexa cameras, it has a fully temperature-controlled image sensor, it's perfect for shooting in extreme environments. If you're in Sydney, it's well worth dropping by Ari's office here, where they can show you the range of Alexa cameras and give you some real insights into how much they're capable of. There's definitely elements of high-tech meets low-tech in that approach, isn't there? It, it, 
exactly. You know, it was they weren't shooting every day because there was obviously weather, and mm. I think there was uh, hot in between. But I think it, it was kind of like over a four to six month shooting time frame. So it was wow. like they they stopped down and, and started back up because one one of the things that Ericsson tries to do is shoot as much as possible in camera. So he tries to minimize the the amount of yeah. visual effects. And Which was one of the other things that struck me watching the film. I was going, wow, these visual effects are phenomenal. It really looks like they're there in these environments. And then I read a little bit about the film and went, oh, my God, they actually did it. That's why it looks so real. Yeah, exactly. So I was getting kind of a taste of his images. And at the same time, I was kind of like thinking of, okay, what can we do to get this autochrome look that uh, he wanted? Mm. So I was trying to break down the look. I was like, okay, well, we have these kind of uh, rough outline borders that framed the images. There's obviously a, a, a granular texture to things. Mm-hmm. And and then, and then other than the grain, there was kind of like this, um, there was these imperfections and there was like um, um, marks that were like, uh, kind of like dirt but not really because they had some color to them and edges and then there was like uh some soft soft areas where uh because of the photography the 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 exposure was quite long so you would any movement there was a little bit of softening Mm. um so i kind of broke it all down and um and then experimented and sort of kind of got a bunch of sort of uh footage, test footage that uh, I played with. And, and, and when he got back to LA to start editing, he would pop by and uh, we would kind of go through a whole bunch of these elements. And first we played around with like textures and uh, I came up with a whole bunch of different textures. Like I was using like uh, various paint canvas textures, some hmm. handmade papers, cloth wow. weaves plaster, like all, all these sort of organic textures to sort of overlay. I even I even thought about taking there was a there was a, an image online of an autochrome image that was like uh, the image was taken under a microscope, so it was like a very you could see all the sort of micro uh, pixels, so to speak, of the or, these old autochrome photos. Wow. I actually to use that as a texture to add into this, but wow. I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I couldn't make that work. I thought that would be a kind of a cool process yeah, but yeah. to take one of the original autochrome textures and, and use it, but no, uh, I didn't, didn't in the end. But So it was a very experimental process. And then there was, you know, we, we got some uh, edge borders happening and then uh, I played around with some sort of, to focus on various areas that we place. And we kind of started eliminating things that didn't work. And then we kind of whittled down. Um, and this was over a few months, whittled down the uh, what worked and what did work. And uh, the one thing that I, you know, realized there was no one magic silver bullet that was just going to nail the, nail the look. 
So it, it meant that I had to use multiple layers. Were you building up multiple layers that would then work across the whole thing or was it scene by scene or shot by shot? How, how precise was it? Well, at this stage, we didn't even know. We were like, we hadn't started the DI. We were just mm. kind of still in experimental mode. Yeah. Um, basically narrowed down the, the textures and it was like a weird combination. We, we used a cloth weave and a, a stone texture. Wow. Um, and then uh, there was a couple of just really kind of grainy, uh, dirty sort of images that I combined to, into one to make what I ended up using it, uh, calling like a stain effect. Mm. And then at the same time, we were doing the borders and he said, oh, I think the borders have to move. So then I, then I uh, brought our visual effects department in and said, well, these are the borders we like that we want them to animate, but not, wow. you know, so then there was talk about, okay, well, how fast do they need to animate? Is there something we need to change speed? And there was all these, what started as, you know, in Ericsson's head, quite a simple thing became all of a sudden <laughs> very detailed and, and, and very complex. And all this testing, we, yeah, we settled on these looks, but uh, we were only ever testing on these still frames. Right. And as soon as we hit the, the play button and the image behind us that moved it, yeah. it all of a sudden just fell apart. It, Arise, I mean, yeah. it looks stunning on a still image yeah. or on a lot of shot, but when the camera or what Ericsson was shooting started to move, it just looked like a veil. Mm. Um, mm. And I think that, it is it is definitely one of the things that really amazed me about the look, the fact that it did have this feeling of texture and what you ended up doing, I think, didn't have that veil kind of feel to it. Yeah. At that point, it was like, okay, well, we have to track everything. Right. So now we had multiple textures yeah. overlaying the image, overlaying on top of the image, and then wow. it was like, okay, we'll have to track it. It was kind of... Like we were heading down the rabbit hole that we just <laughs> never knew how it was, the end of it was. Yeah. And there's like, and we, we learned a lot. You can have kind of movement where the camera is just drifting around, or mm. you can have it a little more active or very violent, depending on what was going on. So we would come up with different degrees of texture depending on what was going on in the scene as wow. well. Um, so, um, so the more sort of static, more heroic images. Uh, we we kind of went to town with the, the the stains and the texture that we overlaid. In the end, it was like we added nine layers wow. of texture uh, on top of the image. That's incredible. Yeah, and if you include then the mats that were coming in for the visual effects, which up, were up to like six or so mat layers, <laughs> we had like at uh, times it was like sixteen layers of source footage being being processed uh, in real time. Wow. Wow, that's yeah. mind-boggling. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, we, there's lots of steps in the process. And then even though we were tracking it, so the, the overall texture then moved with the image, and that was mm. great. Yeah. People's faces would be moving around and could feel it on their faces. So we we would then have to – we basically rotoed um, – people's faces so the texture wouldn't be felt on their faces. Right. We ended up creating this texture plate that was, I think it was 7K. Wow. Um, the, the, the cat, the, it was shot on area. It was like a, uh, 3,400, um, yep. where they're all, um, converted to EXR. 
So I needed a, a large enough plate to, mm. to track. Um, so I created this 7K texture um, wow. that I used to track. What was the rest of the project that you were working in? Um, it was uh, we were delivering a UHD project, mm. uh, 3800. It was all colored in uh, Dolby Vision. Yep. And that was the other thing. I mean, we're talking about the texture and the look, but uh, color, you know, it's obviously a period piece. When Erickson, he was kind of excited to come in and like, uh, we can get all this detail and a little highlights. And it's like, I said, Erickson, this is not what we want. We want to we actually do something. He was like, what? Yeah. Was like, so we, one of the things that I, you know, I've done a lot of uh, HDR projects. And one of the things that I sit down with the filmmakers is where do we clamp the highlights? Mm. Um, there's more than enough range that you can choose from. So it's more like you don't necessarily want all that range. So where are we going to clip the highlights? Or yeah. clip the highlights to like a 300? Yeah, what used to not be really a variable so much in SDR suddenly becomes a variable in HDR. Absolutely. And it, it makes a big difference of the look and feel of it. I create this test project where I have, like I say, well, we can go up to a thousand nits, yep. And this is, and then uh, down to a hundred nits, which is uh, irregular Rick seven and nine, yep. And I basically fade between the two. It's like, okay, where where do you want? And you <laughs> kind of got to look at it and and get a feel for it, yep. um, and say, because you know, because it is a creative decision. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just another part of the process. You can be looking at a shot that's front lit and it's just gorgeous, and you can like crank the highlights right up but if yep. you're looking at a scenario where you're inside and you have these bright windows subject is lit quite dark you don't want that sort of pounding light um, mm. coming in through the windows you really have to be careful where you set it um, and you don't want it to on a period film like this you don't want this crisp uh, highlights anyway you kind mm. of want that fluffy, uh, clamped feel to it yep. so yeah that was definitely a uh uh, part of the process. And and where did you end up with in terms of knit level? That is a good question. I don't know. It's kind of one of those things where you kind of feel, it's like a feeling rather than like uh, a number. Right? So you didn't necessarily put a label on it and go, we're working to this. It's just yeah, you know, yeah. much more intuitive. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, um, it, it was definitely an interesting um, process. And, mm. and just things like, um, you know, I tried using grain, for instance, Yep. Um, regular grain and it just didn't feel right so I rented out just a grain element and then I started playing around like slowing it down and I, and then sort of doing a blend of the slowdown and I yeah. ended up creating this uh, other unique texture of this grain element that was blended um, the grain was running I think it was at six frames a second wow. and then I blended it so it had this kind of motion like grain motion but it was just different it was one of those elements that was important for the process you were able to hide some of the texture mm. um with with movement but it wasn't that that sort of frame for frame 24 frame grain texture kind of buzzing grain yeah it was it was a it was part of the texture mm. So yeah, it was like well, every single layer was was uh, was unique, and we I I built it and we tested it. How did you end up uh, applying those textures? We, we company three were a resolve out, so yep. um, 
most of the most psychologists use Resolve. Such a fantastic tool. Yeah, we were running version 15, and I think version 15 was the first uh, implementation of Fusion into the Resolve. Oh, yeah. It was step one. It was that it was still a little buggy. Yep. Yep. And uh, version 16 just came out. Uh, I don't think it was a full release. I think it was a beta release. Mm. And I, I felt like I needed some sort of compositing device. I could, I could do a lot of it in the color corrector, mm. um, but just felt needed something extra. Yep. Uh, so I, I started testing version Fusion in version 16, and it. It was everything I wanted or everything I needed. Wow. Um, it was it was great. It was uh, solid. It performed really well. It was the first time I ever used it. it. Was it was very easy to learn. The other thing was when you started using all these textures, it was really important the order of everything. Mm. So I had like for instance like a lens uh, edge softening to everything. Now that had to be the first thing that was being applied because if I was adding grain and texture and all that sort of thing after or before the blur then the blur would um, oh of course it would soften those off yeah so i kind of ended up splitting things up so the very first thing i did in fusion was the resolve open effect tool shift uh, tilt shift (laughs) that was another kind of a uh, thing i had to develop as well because the tilt shift open effect is literally a solid line. Like you have an upper and lower limit and you can soften those edges. What I wanted to do was like hand draw a mat and like be able to use Bezier shape to to soften that. And it had to be that effect because that gave it an optical depth. Like if you just grab the the focus knob on the resolve, it, it actually diffuses the image. And I didn't want that. I wanted more of an optical out of focus where it was, um, Mm. It had a, had a more natural feel. Yep. Um, and I had to create essentially like it. If you created like a, a grayscale depth mat and fed that to the open effects, then it would w- do exactly what I did. So I had this complicated node structure, which I originally built in the color corrector. Then I had to rebuild that into Fusion. Wow. To make that work. Um, so that was the first thing I built in Fusion, and that worked, and that worked great. And then I brought in the 7K texture yep. and used a soft blend to blend it, and then also used Fusion to track the 7K plate to the source, and also used uh, mask to root out people's faces or anywhere uh, to adjust the opacity of the texture. So that was all done in Fusion. Well, there's something really amazing about having that VFX tool set there within the grading application that you can actually be kind of going back and forth between those elements or those tools. Absolutely. And I don't think this could have been really done like as a visual effect process because what I found is that as you, depending on how you colored the image, it had a, would have a direct effect mm. on the texture. So there would be, if it was done as a visual effect, there'd be no way they could preempt what mm. sort of level of texture. They would have no idea how much contrast you'd be adding to a shot. Yeah, yeah. Um, or I felt it all had to be done live in the color corrector. So if I added extra contrast to a scene, I could quite easily then jump into Fusion mm. and adjust the opacity layer, the wow. blend layer, or, or any of those layers, um, or just... Uh, 
just roto out a section of the image just to to to, to make it work. And then mm. from shot to shot, they make it look consistent. After fusion, like if you if you look at resolve in the the, the processing way, the next is the irregular color correction, uh, clip by clip. In that area, I, I added on top of it the texture was uh, like a cloth weave and the stone and then the grain. Wow! And all three elements were blended separately because I felt it wasn't random enough. I created, I used an open effects lens flare not to use as a lens lens flare. I wanted this element that was generated live that would react into the image wow. um, as a map. And I used the lens flare essentially to as an opacity adjustment to all these different textures that made the texture feel more integrated into the image because it would yeah. move the the opacity of or, or the visual um, the visualness of the texture would vary depending on the shot and when it would move. So along with that, I also added some edge blur, sort of just some distorted edge blur on the outside. And then after all that, I would then then the, was the color correction. And then I came up came up with this stain process, which th- these random custom textures I combined, and then also used another blend. And I used this stain more heavily on the more static shots. So if I wanted some extra texture in the image I used, I I added this post-clip look that I created after it. And then on the time color timeline side, which any color correction works on the overall timeline, Mm -hmm. I had the border, I had a border, edge border that would just quite a long loop. And then uh, uh, I used uh, some old 16 mil edge light leaks that I used that would also loop down. So there was this subtle pulsing edge lightly that would I used. And then all my laps for the Dolby was, was the last thing of all. So right. that was part of my flow of the texture um, mm-hmm. throughout the result. It was a very, <laughs> there's a lot of heavy lifting going on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there's it's a lot of processing, a lot of thinking. DaVinci Resolve is rapidly becoming one of the most powerful all-in-one finishing solutions in the industry. With editing and conform, visual effects, color grading, and sound all in one package, it's a tool that everybody should have in the repertoire. And our friends at MZ have some of the best online training available for Resolve. So if you need to get up to speed on Resolve, check them out at mz.com and use the promo code TSTOP for a 20% discount. It's a lot of complexity to achieve subtlety. Yeah. You know, look, I'm not saying... It looks exactly like the autochrome process, but you know, as I said to Ericsson, this is this is our this is our version of autochrome. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like and it looks you know, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of films that have you know tried to to use or use the autochrome as a as a reference. Mm, mm. Um, they all they all come up a little different. So yeah, you yeah. know, I think this is our version of it, and mm. I think so. It's it's, an, it's something I'm. I've never done before. It's, I think it's unique and it's something yeah. I'm really proud of. And, and um, that's uh, that's the thing. It struck me watching it. It's, it really felt new, like it really felt like a, a fresh look, which which you don't see all that often. No, it's and it's it, it was this process was made for this film. You know what mm. I mean? It's it's yep. it's, 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 uh, it's unique to this film, and yeah. and that's kind of a nice thing about it. And like because I I know. Ericsson was asked, now you've 
on this process, would you do it again? And it's yeah. like, well, no. I mean, he <laughs> said, no, it's right. We developed for this film. Yeah, it yeah. was great. We loved the process of doing it, and you know, but it's done. You know what I mean? That's that's, mm. that's it's done its job now. Yeah. So with the color aspects, which parts of uh-huh. the tool set were you relying on? Everything was had had a slight desat um, yep. to everything. The interior footage. Now, if you look at autochrome references, the colors as they went darker into black. I felt like there was less and less saturation, mm. and you kind of felt that in more the more saturated image reference images. So the interior shots where there was a lot of candle lit warm environments, yep. where we had a lot more color, I I actually desaturated the shadows a little bit. Mm. So doing that with curves. Yes, I was using the the, the curves to, yeah. to desaturate that, so you get a nice kind of smooth roll off. Un- some of the windows, um, and, I, and I felt it was a little, sometimes it was a little sharp, just being in HDR. Mm. It, it, like even the, the, the highlights are a little, had been clamped. I just felt the edges were a little sharp. So yep. I often uh, added a little bit of glow to the windows. Sometimes I was using that uh, when the camera was inside and sometimes at nighttime. Oh, uh, yes. Where the, the there was light coming through the, the windows and mm. just felt it was a little little hard-edged. So glow was my, um, the open effect glow was a, was a tool I used a lot um, just to, to just to soften it and just spread out the highlights a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah. And just, it gives it a, little, a nice little atmosphere um, and it's kind of, it, it does shift and change with the camera movement. So it, it's kind of a nice plug-in. A little bit like uh, Promist. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of a lot of keen, even though we were trying to clamp the highlights a lot, we, we were isolating skies and um, windowing faces. You know, you kind of typical, like, color transfer stuff where, you know, a little bit of vignetting combined with keys um, yep. and then just making sure, like, people's faces to, to see their uh, expressions and mm. um, the emotion or, like, you know, just sharpen the, the drop of a tear uh, running down someone's cheek just yep. to kind of give it like a highlight or... Um, Can be quite powerful. Just to emphasize what the, the viewer is, you know, looking at. Mm. So what was the uh, finishing workflow? It was conformed on Resolve. One of the deliverables to Disney was that uh, they wanted an EXR output of the source footage. So... We decided early on that we'll just convert everything to EXR. So we'll just um, coloring from one source. The beauty about EXR files, especially from visual effects vendors, is is the embedded map. So mm. you're not having to run separate elements of of map. That all just stays with the file. Yeah, and that's that's the beauty about you know conforming on the resolve with the EXR file. The visual effects were just uh, delivered, and it was kind of like you know, constant update. They were happening and editorials happening and yeah. colors happening. A lot of things kind of work in progress wise would come in and, and Ericsson would see them for the first time in my bay and would feedback notes to the vendors. That happened a lot throughout the process. So the reels were constantly being updated mm-hmm. um, for visual effects. Uh, and then there's like the titles and um, end call that 
that always comes in like pretty late. Yep. You know, once we had finished the HDR version, then we started color. They wanted a P3 version. Mm -hmm. um, For cinema. Yeah. So we moved from coloring on glass into a theater. We have a science, color science department here at Company 3. So they, they generated uh, some conversion lots from the, our HDR to P3 as a starting point, uh, as well as, you know, HDR, uh, well, Rec 79 is a, it's a separate path, obviously it tags along because we're in Dolby Vision. Yep. How much tweaking did you need to do in the, um, the P3 cinema version? It's not a lot, especially because we weren't pushing the highlights too much. Once we established the offset, there wasn't a huge amount because the good thing in, in, in Dolby Vision, you're, you're sort of in P3 color space anyway, so there's, yeah. there's not too much thing from in the colors. It's kind of more just the, the sort of levels, the, the, you know, how, how, you know, uh, how much detail you want to see in the shadows. Yeah, and, probably as much perceptual as anything. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and what was interesting is with the texture on the big screen, because mm. the texture actually sitting with it for months, on a screen in HDR, you kind yep. of got used to that level, and then seeing it on a different medium, all of a sudden, didn't come across as obvious as what we're seeing in HDR. And that, I, mm. I, I presume that's just a the scale, like it there was yep. a softening of the image because you you see it on a thirty foot screen, not a thirty inch screen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then also the contrast ratio is is a mm. lot less. You know, from whatever we were, three, 400 nits to 50 nits on, yeah. a, on, a, on a projection screen. Because at the beginning of the film, before we started coloring, there was a discussion on should we color in the theater on P3 or should we do each and then convert it to HDR or yep. color in, in HDR first. So It's a big question these days, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and and to be honest, we the, in terms of the, the texture in the autochrome look, we would have ended up with a, it's slightly different feel, I, I think, because mm. you would very differently. Because there is a different thinking process, isn't there, between starting with HDR and then converting to cinema or Rec. 7 and 9 very, versus very much going so. the other way. Very much so, because this film is going to live on TV screens is definitely the choice for this film. The P3, I think, was generated mainly for the previews and um, the premiere as well. Yeah, yeah, which is obviously pretty important in its own way. Absolutely, you want to make it make it look its best, and, and it didn't look amazing on the big screen. It was just, I guess, having lived with it for months and and yeah, getting yeah. a feel for that the look. It, it there was some differences, mm. but you know, without doing a whole uh, texture pass, um, yeah. which we could have done, but you know, obviously there's a limited time and money in that <laughs> one, but. Uh, and that, that kind of brings up a, a, another a, an interesting point is is when you're doing or like when we have all these layers and you're you judging each layer individually, yep. you're going over over the, each reel of the film so many more times than if you were just applying color, just because it was just brain overload of what to look at. Like, mm. you, like you're looking at color, texture, looking at the borders, looking at like is the texture affecting people's faces um, like too much? Is it is it tracked properly? There was so much information to look at, yeah, uh, which meant like a lot of passes of just going over each reel far more than uh, 
you would do if you were just doing regular colour DR. Are there any techniques that you use to try and keep your perspective fresh? Yeah, I mean, each scene is very separate. So even though the core textures that were the same, we would definitely have to approach each scene a little differently just because of the source footage or, you know, if it was bright, if it was dark, if it was, there was a lot of camera movement, mm. very static. We learned a lot in the process of what best suited each kind of style. So in that regard, yeah, it was definitely a learning process. And fusion as well, like, you know, it was the first time I really got into fusion. And um, there were definitely times along the way when I was working, um, and this is not just for fusion, it was like film as a whole, is that like, oh my God, have I have I bitten off more than I can chew on this? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> there's just so many, so many live elements. And, um, you know, I had a couple of colorists helping me out, just tracking things and, uh, vision, you know, managing the visual effects department yeah. to, you know, come up with, uh, different elements for me to use. It was, it was, it was kind of not only myself who was kind of driving the vision, but, you know, I'm working with, uh, you know, team here at company three, your producers, assistant, colorist assist. And it was all new to them. So mm. not only I was dealing with new processes as a colorist, I was also trying to educate and, and describe and, and you know, manage a lot of that. It just added to the sort of the extra chores that I had to do. Yeah. Um, but it was great. And, and everyone, you know, everyone who worked on it was like, thought, wow, this is like, you know, great. And everyone learned a lot. Uh, which is nice, mm. and um, there was definitely times of like, how do we, you know, because none of none of us had you know, fusion was new to us all, and we're like using these different resolutions, and how does it we render it out? Mm. Like, what happens? Yeah. Scale the scaling of these elements. There was, all, there was a lot of testing and things in the background before we were really confident. It's like, okay, well, if we go down this path, we need to make sure that we can deliver it. Not only that we were testing and creating the look, there was a lot of testing and creating the background. Mm. I'm sure that what I wanted to do could actually be achieved. And uh, we didn't have any issues. And it's interesting because you integrating the use of Fusion and the, the color correction in, in that yeah. same process, that yeah. really wasn't possible very, very recently. Absolutely. I mean, this is... You know, we were using version 16 hadn't been officially released. We were using mm. a beta version of this software. Wow. Um, and, and the Fusion part of the software I hadn't used before. None of us had used before here at Company 3. So having like gone through all the steps and developing this look and knowing what Ericsson wanted and his vision, and, you know, we would show him, like, he goes, yes, that's what I want. And then it's like, okay, well, how do we do this? Yeah. And I don't think it could have been achieved prior to, to version 16. It's a, it's a pretty, pretty major step forward when you, yeah. when you look at it oh, like absolutely. that. You mentioned earlier about the, the development of, you know, through my career. And this is like, uh, this is a major step mm. um, because, uh, you know, it's so integrated yeah. um, to have all the you know, this autochrome textured integrated the color and it had to look integrated that's why it had to be all done in the color correction because they were so integrated and 
and and why you'd need to be able to bounce back and forth between those different aspects of the yeah. look. It really opened my eyes. Of like it, it's like an it's like a whole new window to look through and discover. And really looking forward to another film that I can <laughs> use use fusion as, as so detailed as part of the, the, the creative process. You know what I mean? It's mm, not, mm. It, it's not with color. It's so good. There's very good reasons of doing it. It wasn't just because it was there or whatever. Yeah. There was there was a good reason to, to use it. And that's why I think it's uh, so special. And- Definitely. The fact that you came on board starting to work on that look so early in the process how important do you think that was in terms of being able to get to that really cohesive and subtle end result? I think in this particular case, it was extremely important. It not only put me sort of like, you know, not only having talked to Ericsson and to sort of see his vision of what he wanted, it allowed me just the time. And it was kind of like a, a passion project, really, for for between that original meeting and the how many months before we started the DI, it was a passion project of mine. And I was like obsessed about daily, <laughs> daily thing of just yeah. thinking about and looking and like, what can, what can I do to um, not only come up with these textures, but how to integrate it, you know, and I would be at home. I, I'd be, looking at all these looking for pieces old pieces of paper and canvas and going down to art shops and taking photos and um bringing those photos into the resolve and using them as elements mm-hmm. and looking online like it was um invaluable um yeah. having having that sort of original like meeting and being included because had he said like shot the film, it's in the can, and it's like, okay, Siggy, let's let's start the DI. It's like it it just never would have happened. Yeah, it would have been a very very different end result. Yeah, and it's amazing when you when you turn all those textures and layers off and just look at the image. Yeah, it's a very different feel. It's a very different feel of yeah. the like it 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 looks totally different. You you just watching it with with all the elements. You you it's just something you accept. It's not. I think the the level what we integrated everything in is is you it's not distracting and that was not the other all. important part. Yep. Yep. Um that it you wanted to see it, you wanted to feel it, but you didn't want it to be distracting or annoying. Yeah. And it walks that very, very fine line beautifully. Yeah, yeah. So it couldn't have been done any other way. Had he brought this to me like day one of the DI, it just yeah. it just would not have happened mm. it was far too much experimental and playing around just to, to to get it get the look to where he wanted and i think it's one of the key things about the creative process in general and it, it applies so much to color grading you, you have to kind of have the freedom to try things that might not work in order to come up with something new yeah yeah and yeah absolutely and you shouldn't you know one thing with color correction you shouldn't be afraid to fail um you should like being allowed to experiment on look is so important everyone's also looking for that edge everyone's like you know wanting a unique there's so much content out there Mm. especially for for tv what erickson wants to do not only made the film look unique it was also appropriate for the film and i I think that's also important yeah to to be aware 
combination of these images, which are beautiful in themselves and like stunning vistas and locations mm. are, are, are absolutely stunning. Yeah. Um, this is just such an additive process to, to, to bring it back to the era. It was. It's not changing it. It's adding to it. Yeah. It just all, it all is an additive process. Of course, the other interesting or unusual thing about this film is that it's director and cinematographer, same person doing both of those roles. How was that for the, the collaboration with you in the DI? Well, uh, one less voice in the room is always, <laughs> it, 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 it's always good. Yeah. Um, I think for Ericsson, it's different. He always had to, like, you know, sometimes he was talking with his director hat on and sometimes he was talking with his cinematographer hat on and, yeah, and yeah. sometimes they argued with so, um, but for me, it made it a lot clearer because it was just him and I. I mean, yeah. essentially, throughout the whole process, it was just him and I in the room. It was very much a collaborative process. Um, and, um, uh, you know, this is our second film together. We have a really good relationship and an understanding of each other. And he allows me the freedom to experiment and try different mm. things and he's not afraid to, to, to push things and you know not a, you know when it comes to the color process he's not afraid to he, he has a, an amazing eye but he also knows and you know he knows what he wants but he also allows you the, the latitude to, to experiment which is not always the case um, but with him and I we have we have such a good relationship we um, you know, it's 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 very conducive to sort of getting the most out of the images. That's fantastic. What sort of projects have you got coming up? I am I'm just starting season two of The Boys, which is an Amazon show. Fantastic. Um, which I uh, did work on season season one. I did uh, the morning show for Apple Plus. Fantastic. Um, season mm. one, so I'll be doing got that season two coming out. I'm currently, I'm not sure if they have it in Australia, but I do a, a network show called SWAT. I have uh, a lot of commercials uh, daily, and uh, I have a feature film coming up, but I, I can't talk too much about that right now. Yeah. So <laughs> definitely, uh, uh, if it was anything like last year, I'm going to have a busy, <laughs> a busy year. Definitely keeps you on your toes and keeps the the creative uh, juices flowing. Like it, you know, really does keep you keep you fresh. I think mm. having sort of switching, you know, nearly forty years of color correction. It's been, you know, it's like just having the the excitement and and sort of the, sort of passion for a project like Togo. Mm. You know, I still still love color correction and. Um, and, and switching between all the genres, it's, sort of, it's a healthy way to work for me anyway. Ziggy, thanks for stopping in. Thank you very much. That was Ziggy Firstall, brought to you with the support of our friends at ARI Australia and MZ Online Training. See you next time. <laughs>